Chapter Five of Walpole by John Morley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five, The Court. An event now occurred which was by many confidently expected to bring Walpole's career as minister to an end. In the summer of seventeen twenty-seven, George the First died on the road to Hanover. The news found Walpole in his rural villa at Chelsea. He instantly rode off to Richmond as fast as he could to announce to the new king what had happened. The prince always retired to rest after his midday dinner, and there Walpole found him. For some time he disbelieved the news and refused to get out of bed to be told that he was king, as stubbornly as Barnardine in the play refuses Abhorson's summons to rise and be hanged. When he was at length convinced that his father was dead, he dismissed the minister with a curt command to seek Sir Spencer Compton at Chiswick, and from him to take his directions. This was what Walpole had expected. His fidelity to the interests of his former master had apparently ensured the enmity of his successor. As the son hated his father, he could not well love his father's most trusted adviser. Compton was a younger son of the family of Northampton, and had been speaker in three parliaments. In this capacity he had been successful and popular, and had shown some resource. When a member desired that order might be kept, for he had a right to be heard, the speaker would make the ingenious rejoinder, No, sir, you have a right to speak, but the House have a right to judge whether they will hear you. Besides being speaker, he had been the prince's treasurer ever since his arrival in England. His selection to be the new minister would therefore have been natural, but the old men were not displaced at once, and before many days were over, the king made up his mind not to displace them at all. At the time of the accommodation between the old king and his son, seven years before, Walpole seems to have had as much influence with the Princess of Wales as he ever acquired over her as queen. Footnote. Lady Cowper's Diary, under date 1720. End footnote. And the new circumstances may well have revived old impressions. At first, things at the new court underwent the change of face in which satirists of every age and tongue rejoice. Leicester House, in the old king's lifetime, had been shunned like a city stricken with the plague. All at once it became thronged from morning to night. Walpole, whose steps had so long been dogged by a mob of toadies and place-hunters, now made vacancy wherever he turned. Compton held levies crowded by men who had sworn in prose and verse that no adverse fate should ever separate them from Sir Robert. The new king's feelings towards the three principal men in his father's government had never been concealed. Walpole he was accustomed freely to describe as rogue and rascal. The Duke of Newcastle was an impertinent fool, and Townsend a choleric blockhead. Yet the experience of a few days was enough to show the king that the rascal, the impertinent, and the blockhead were the three best servants that he was likely to find. Compton's incompetency was manifest within four and twenty hours. He had, moreover, committed the indiscretion of making the new king's wife his enemy by paying court to the mistress, and he was the first to find that the enmity of the new queen 
was invariably fatal to its object. But still more important causes worked for the retention of the old ministry. The most formidable danger to be apprehended, alike for English and for Hanoverian interests, was any change in the friendly attitude of France. Happily, Cardinal Fleury saw no reason why the substitution of George II for George I should affect the interests or policy of France. He explained his views to Horace Walpole, the British ambassador. France would hold firm to all her engagements as one of the allies of Hanover if the new king would adhere to the system of his father and to the old principle that the common security of the two countries lay in steadfast union. Fleury, moreover, sensibly assuring the ambassador that more would be done in a couple of days of conversation than by volumes of dispatches, urged him to repair at once to London and lay his views before the king. When Walpole arrived, the king began by scolding him after his usual manner for quitting his post without leave. Then, when the preliminary blustering was over and the cardinal's letter was produced, King George was too acute not to see what good news the ambassador had brought, and at the same time how much easier it would be to steer the same course if the same ministers remained at the helm. The delicate operation of fixing the amount of the civil list turned equally in Walpole's favor. The Whigs, out of place, regarding office as the object of party auction, strove to outbid the Whigs in place. Now this was a sort of play at which Walpole was not easy to beat. Compton proposed that the Queen's jointure should be settled at £60,000. Walpole offered to ask Parliament for £100,000. The grant to the late King had been £700,000 a year. Walpole gave it to be understood that he would put it at £800,000, and at this sum it was finally settled. The King in the conversation with Walpole, in which these terms were discussed, took him by the hand and said, quote, Consider, Sir Robert, what makes me easy in this matter will prove for your ease too. It is for my life, it is to be fixed, and it is for your life. End quote. Before the courtiers could guess what was going on, Compton had, with tears in his eyes, declared his incapacity for so arduous a trust and Walpole and Townsend were once more reinstalled. As Walpole drove through St. James's Square, he saw Sir Spencer Compton's house besieged by people of all ranks, eager to worship the rising sun. Quote, Did you observe, he said to a friend, how my house is deserted, and how that door is crowded with carriages? Tomorrow this house will be deserted, and mine will be more frequented than ever. End quote. Before the secret was out, his wife went to pay her respects at Leicester House. She could not, says her son, make her way between the scornful backs and sharp elbows of the fine people who had a few days before been her steadfast devotees. When the queen called out, quote, I think I see a friend, and beckoned her forward, everybody eagerly made way. And as I came back, said Lady Walpole, I might have walked over their heads if I pleased, end quote. It is not surprising that Walpole failed to take exalted views of human nature. At least he had good sense and breadth of mind enough to keep clear of a cheap and shallow misanthropy. The remarkable woman 
who now made her first appearance on the stage of great affairs, was to play an important part in Walpole's career. Caroline of Ansbach came of a branch of the house of Brandenburg. Having lost her father early, the young princess was partially brought up in Berlin. There, in the society of Sophia Charlotta, the friend of Leibniz, and so inquisitively curious that, as Leibniz said of her, she would know even the why of a why, she acquired the keenness of mind for speculative subjects and that respect for learning and learned men which distinguished her from the rest of the gross and unlettered representatives of the Hanoverian stock in England. She possessed by nature the same cheerful, brisk, curious, acute, and stirring character as both the Queen, Sophia Charlotta, and her mother, the old Electress Sophia. She sometimes recalls, too, Charlotta Elizabeth of Bavaria, the niece of the Electress Sophia, and cousin, therefore, of George II, who married the brother of Louis the Fourteenth, became the mother of the Regent d'Orléans, and watched for so many years with shrewd, honest, amazed eyes the strange distractions and devilries of her vile husband and her corrupted son. Like the lives of these her kinswomen, so oddly mated, can hardly have been a very happy one, if happiness means the regular satisfaction of our best aims and highest faculties. But she had that reasonable substitute for happiness, which lies in cheerful stoicism, in an active constancy of mind, and in a clear-eyed resolution to see men and things as they are. George the Second was always called by his cousin Frederick William, the terrible father of Frederick the Great, quote, my brother the comedian, end quote. He had the strut, the gesticulation, the bustle of the bad play actor, and like the bad actor, he was all the more eager for applause because he inwardly suspected that he only half deserved it. He was not without sterling qualities. He had physical courage. In Marlborough's wars, he had served with credit, and even his father, who hated him, admitted that he fought like a man. He knew how to keep a secret, and he was proud of being a man of honor and a man of his word. This did not prevent him from snatching his father's will from the hands of the Archbishop of Canterbury at his first council, walking out of the room with the will in his pocket, and taking care that it should never be heard of again. He treated the will of his uncle, the Duke of York, with equally little ceremony. The shade of George I could not have complained, for he had burnt both his wife's will and her father's. Yet George II was rather above than below the standard of veracity current in his time. When Harvey observed to Walpole that the king would not lie, not often, Walpole replied. He was sober and temperate in most of his appetites, though not in all, and his habits were methodical to a point of mechanical regularity that drove those who had to live with him almost mad. His drives in the afternoon, his commerce and backgammon at night, his levees and audiences in the morning, were all fixed to the instant, so that, as the weary courtiers complained, with an almanac for the day of the week and a watch for the hour of the day, everybody would know precisely what point in the mill-horse track the court was passing. It was his habit to visit the favorite Mrs. Howard every evening in her own apartments at nine o'clock with such mechanical punctuality 
that he often walked about his chamber for ten minutes with his watch in his hand, waiting for the blissful moment. A mistake by a valet would throw him into such agitation that people who came into the room supposed that he must have just received some dreadful piece of news. In ordinary intercourse, he was stiff, formal, and uneasy, as men are apt to be who privately doubt their own fitness for a post, but hope that their secret is not found out. He had a laudable impatience with people who did not come quickly to the point, and one of the many reasons why he hated the administration of Pitt to office was that the great commoner treated him to grand speeches in the closet. They might, he said, be uncommonly fine, but were quite beyond his comprehension. The king's confidence was hard to gain, and he was reserved in showing it, but he was never unstable. He steadily respected the judgment of the queen. He was firm as a rock for Walpole, and when the time came, he fought like a lion for Carteret. With all his faults, we must give such a man credit for character. He was avaricious and mean. The only present that he ever made to Walpole was a diamond, and it was found to be cracked quite through. His temper was passionate and splenetic, and he was an incessant railer. Though not exactly bad-hearted or malevolent, he was thoroughly unfeeling. He is described as timorous in counsel, quote, he thinks he is devilish stout, said Walpole once, when the king was bent on going to Hanover, and the minister was resolved that he should not, and that he never gives up his will or his opinion, but he never acts in anything material, but when I have a mind that he should. Our master, like most people's masters, wishes himself absolute, and fancies he has courage enough to attempt making himself so, but if I know anything of him, he is, with all his personal bravery, as great a political coward as ever wore a crown. This was the man whom it was the great business of the Queen's life to humor, to cajole, to amuse, to restrain, and to lead. She acquired complete ascendancy over him, but it was purchased at a merciless price, and it needed to be carefully hidden. In spite of his self-satisfaction, the king was too sharp not to know that every design, project, and combination which he found in his mind had been laboriously planted there by concert between Walpole and the queen. But he flattered himself that nobody else knew it. To make the comedy perfect, he was never weary of jibing at sovereigns who had been governed by women and by favorites. Charles I was ruled by his wife, Charles II by his mistresses, James II by his priests, King William by his Dutchmen, Queen Anne by Lady Marlborough and Lady Masham. He wound up his list with a smile of triumph by asking, And who do they say governs now? The king had almost to the end not only a great admiration for the queen's judgment, but also, in spite of his unfaithfulness, a strong attachment to her person. When he was absent in Hanover, he wrote letters to the queen thirty pages long, as warm and tender as those of, quote, a young sailor of twenty to his first mistress, end quote. This did not prevent him from being rough and uncivil, even when he meant to be kind. One half of his conversation with her was made up of what its unfortunate victim called 
snappings and snubbings and he was in all circumstances intolerably exacting he hated the company of men as much as he delighted in that of women and as he could not bear to be alone the queen was obliged for many hours in every day to watch him strutting and fuming about her apartment to listen to his rude and irascible tirades with affected interest to return insults with obsequious flattery and to practise all the other slavish artifices by which unlucky women of sense are often compelled to manage their tyrants his majesty comes into the gallery snubs the queen who happened to be drinking chocolate for always stuffing one princess for not hearing him and another for being grown fat one of his sons for standing awkwardly lord harvey for not knowing what relation the prince of Salzbach was to the elector palatine and then he carries off the queen to receive more snubs in the garden the queen ventures to make some remark to harvey about bishop hoadley's book on the sacraments the king breaking in asks her why she loves talking such nonsense about things she knows nothing about as if it were not fools loving to talk of such things that made the fools who wrote upon them publish their nonsense then he turns to harvey and tells him that if the bishop of winchester is his friend he has a great puppy and a very dull fellow and a great rascal for his friend Quote, it is a very pretty thing for such scoundrels when they are raised by favour so much above their desert to be talking and writing their stuff to give trouble to the government that has shown them that favour and very modest in a canting hypocritical knave to be crying the kingdom of christ is not of this world at the same time that he as christ's ambassador receives six thousand a year so the torrent of petulance every day ran on for hour after hour the queen all the time by smiles and nods at the right places endeavouring to signify her approval of his wisdom to keep herself as safely out of mischief as she could and to prevent onlookers from discerning the depth of her humiliation and chagrin for an hour or two before bedtime he would talk about armies or about genealogies whilst the queen knitted and yawned quote, she was at least seven or eight hours a day tete-a-tete -tete with the king every day during which time she was generally saying what she did not think assenting to what she did not believe and praising what she did not approve she used to give him her opinion as jugglers do a card by changing it imperceptibly and making him believe he held the same as that he first pitched upon but that which made these tete-a-tetes seem heaviest was that he neither liked reading nor being read to unless it was to sleep she was forced like a spider to spin out of her own bowels all the conversation with which the fly was taken for all the tedious hours she spent in watching him while he slept or the heavier task of entertaining him while he was awake her single consolation was in reflecting that she had power and that people in coffee-houses were saying she governed their country without knowing how dear the government of it cost her end quote, harvey we may judge how deadly the weariness became from the story that when lady suffolk was falling out of favour the princess royal actually said that she wished with all her heart that her father would take somebody else quote, that mamma might be a little relieved from the ennui 
of seeing him forever in her room. End quote. No private complacence was thought by the Queen too hard to be borne, so long as it helped her to retain exclusive access to the King's ear in public affairs. No humiliation was too abject if she could only restrain his variable impulses and guide him along the path that was indicated by her good Sir Robert. Walpole often told her that she was the sole mover of the court, and if he could boast of any success in carrying on the king's affairs, it was all due to her mediation. Quote, For if, he said, I have had the merit of giving any good advice to the king, all the merit of making him take it, madam, is entirely your own, and so much so that I not only never did anything without you, but I know I never could, end quote. When courtiers heard the Queen using metaphors about not hanging every hound that ran a little slower than the rest, provided in the main it kept up with the pack, they knew very well, and even the King must have guessed, that the imagery came from Norfolk and not from Hanover. Though the King and Queen were, from their position, the useful guardians of our free constitution, they had no predilection for political liberty. The dapper Martinet is said always to have hated his English subjects as republicans and killers of kings. Even the queen, filled as she was by the stiff and narrow ideas of German courts, was never cordially reconciled to the dependence in which the king was held upon ministers and parliament. In her heart, it was odious to her that the king should be the pensioner of his people, forced to go to the House of Commons for every shilling that he needed. Though she was ready to dispense with ceremony when it stood in the way of her convenience, as when she conversed with Lord Harvey for two hours through the half-open door of her bedroom, she always held high notions of regal etiquette. She sometimes honoured Sir Robert by dining at his house in Chelsea. The Queen, we are told, sat down to table with Lady Walpole and any member of the royal family whom she had brought with her. Sir Robert stood behind her chair, handed her the first dish, and then retired into another room where he dined with the Queen's household attendants. On the other hand, Walpole and the Queen were on terms of familiarity in their discourse which would now be not only amazing between any royal consort and a minister, but between any decent man and any decent woman. It is painful, even at this distance of time, when they have all shrunk into thin ghosts and shadows of names, to read some of the jests with which Walpole regaled the Queen at her own expense and to her profound secret discomfiture as a woman. Much as the Queen had to endure in her masculine desire for power, her use of it, was uniformly for good. She had a thorough grasp of the principles of Walpole's policy. She comprehended and sympathized with his temper and his maxims, and she perceived as clearly as Walpole himself how closely the stability of the dynasty was bound up with the firm maintenance of a parliamentary constitution. No two personages were ever more fitted thoroughly to understand one another than Walpole and Queen Caroline. The Queen, however, had some higher intellectual interests, which to Walpole probably seemed as pure nonsense as they seemed to King George. She often tried to make him read Butler's analogy, 
but he told her that his religion was fixed and that he had no desire either to change or improve it quote, at no period in the history of our church says a good authority has the ecclesiastical patronage of the crown been better directed than while it was secretly dispensed by queen caroline for a brief period liberality and cultivation of mind were passports to promotion in the church End quote. footnote Pattison, essays volume two page one o nine and footnote she offered a bishopric to berkeley and her recommendation led to the preferment of butler to durham hoadley was too political and too liberal in his politics to be a favorite with crowned heads but hare and sherlock were among her best friends her own theological views undoubtedly leaned to the latitudinarian the tolerant and the heterodox and were presumably as empty of spiritual force as the rest of the rationalism of the time in her girlhood a marriage had been projected with the archduke who afterwards became the emperor charles the sixth and she had with that design been instructed in the great controversies between the two creeds with a view to her conversion to the romish church when the marriage was abandoned it was found that instead of preferring either faith to the other she had learned to suspect both her favorite divine was dr samuel clark with him once a week in the midst of courtiers and fine ladies she discussed whether the will is free whether the annihilation of time and space is beyond the power of omnipotence itself whether the first person of the holy trinity can annihilate the second and the third clark once went with sir isaac newton to help the great philosopher to explain to her his immortal system the queen wished to make clark a bishop and employed walpole to overcome the good man's scruples the incongruous pair fought the question until the candles were burnt down to the socket but walpole found that a metaphysician is not so easily persuaded for his own good as a member of parliament according to another story the queen thought of making clark archbishop of canterbury until she was told that he was indeed the most learned and most honest man in the king's dominions and only in one respect unfit for the sea namely that he was not a christian what is at least as interesting as the queen's correspondence with leibnitz or her discrimination in the selection of superior divines she was the steady patron of handel even the tranquil atmosphere of art was invaded by the passions of political party and the court was for handel because the prince of wales was for bononcini handel's noblest work was not produced until after queen caroline's death but she deserves credit for her early recognition of the one resplendent genius who soars above the prosaic level of that uninspired and uninspiring time no apology is needed for dwelling at length on the personal character and conduct of the king and queen Today, the immediate source of a minister's strength is the favor of the house of commons in the first half of the eighteenth century the immediate source of strength was the favor of the court the king was at the mercy of the whig clans the pelhams the cavendishes the cobhams but among their representatives he was often able to exercise a limited choice for the first place he could choose whether the head of the administration should be sunderland or townsend or walpole or carteret or pelham to this extent 
the government was the personal government of the king and the wearisome intrigues that preceded the installation of walpole that were always ready to spring up during his supremacy and that broke out into dire activity immediately after his fall were the natural results of the king's position as a limited arbiter in the personal wrangles of the oligarchy walpole enjoyed the favour of the court because he was able by prudent and skilful management of the house of commons to obtain supplies and it was one of his prime maxims both to keep on good terms with the popular house and to exalt its place in the constitution but it is a great mistake to suppose that walpole was ever a popular minister dr johnson once drew a striking and a sound distinction between walpole's position and that of the first pit walpole he said was a minister given by the king to the people pitt was a minister given by the people to the king this was true and significant never at any time did walpole approach the popularity of the elder pitt in seventeen fifty seven of the younger pitt in seventeen eighty four or of canning in eighteen twenty seven the same remark has been made of sir robert peel that not even when he reached the summit of power in eighteen forty one did his fame shine out like that of these three illustrious predecessors peel established his power on the confidence of the middle classes and walpole undoubtedly in the same way was trusted by the moneyed interests of his day but the trust placed in him by the moneyed interests and his gradual reconciliation with the landed interest would have been of no avail without the steady favour of the court as it is a mistake to suppose that walpole ever rode on the flood-tide of popularity in its modern sense so is it a mistake to regard his ascendancy as having been undisputed from the fall of sunderland he had loyally shared power with his principal colleague and it was not until some time after the accession of george the second that his supremacy became absolute walpole's favour with the queen hastened the rupture between the minister and lord townshend for thirty years they had been intimate friends and for twenty years out of the thirty they had been close political confederates they were both strict and constant whigs they both suffered the censure of the tory parliament of queen anne they acted together in the first administration of george the first and they left it together at the schism from the sunderland whigs in seventeen seventeen they both rejoined their old colleagues in seventeen twenty and both resumed their old posts in seventeen twenty one they expected a common disgrace on the accession of george the second and had instead been maintained in their offices as the two pillars of a common policy all this time townshend had held the more prominent situation of the two the secretary of state was higher in the official ordering than any other political minister townshend was a noble was much the greatest man in his country and had far the finest house walpole was a commoner had only moderate means and was for long no higher in station than a score of other norfolk gentlemen all this had changed walpole had slowly risen by sheer weight of character 
and ability to be by far the foremost man in the House of Commons, by means of which I shall have something to say later, he had acquired money and credit enough to build himself one of the greatest mansions not only in Norfolk but in all England. He had made his eldest son a peer, secured a provision for every member of his family, and decorated himself with a badge that was coveted by kings and princes. The friendship of Queen Caroline now gave him the same preeminence in the councils of the king as Townsend had in the previous reign enjoyed by his favour with the Duchess of Kendal. This inversion of parts was more than Townsend could bear. His conduct after his fall shows him to have been a really honourable and high-minded man in times when honour and magnanimity were rare among public personages. But he was proud, impetuous, self-confident, very impatient of criticism or contradiction, not persuasive nor lucid in explaining himself, and therefore often heated and passionate as those who are not lucid are apt to be. He could not endure banter, and Walpole sometimes bantered him even in the royal presence. Finally, it was bitter to him to see the decorous hospitalities of Raynham eclipsed by the roistering of Houghton. Apart from these grounds of personal grudge, the two ministers began to differ in serious things. Walpole had hitherto contented himself with a general hand in foreign politics. When Townsend made the Treaty of Hanover, Walpole disapproved of a measure for which he would have to find money, and which he would have, against his better judgment, to defend in the House of Commons, where it was extremely unpopular. He openly expressed these views, and gave it to be understood that the man who had to devise the means and to persuade the House to pass the measure must have a dominant voice in the policy. With characteristic wisdom, he distrusted elaborate schemes of foreign policy, and hated all complicated engagements. Townsend, on the contrary, delighted in them, and the more complicated and entangling they were, the more consummate he thought them. Quote, as long as the firm was Townsend and Walpole, said Sir Robert in a well-known sentence, the utmost harmony prevailed. But it no sooner became Walpole and Townsend than things went wrong. End quote. Friendship declined into coolness, and coolness grew to open estrangement. One evening at Windsor, the Queen asked the pair where they had dined. Walpole said that Townsend had dined with a certain elderly lady of quality, of remarkable ugliness, upon whose virtue he could not but think that his lordship had designs. Townsend took fire at the jest, and with a voice shaking with passion cried out to Walpole, whose own license was notorious and unblushing, quote, I have not either a constitution that requires such practices, a purse that can support them, or a conscience that can digest them, end quote. Walpole good-naturedly tried to turn the matter aside, but it needed all the Queen's tact to pacify his angry colleague. On another occasion at this time, a much more violent altercation took place. The two great men seized one another by the collar in a lady's drawing-room, grasped the hilts of their swords, and were with much difficulty parted, amid their hostess's shrill screams for the guard. In 1729, Townsend, discerning that his position was thoroughly secondary, 
gave in his resignation and retired with dignity and composure into private life he never returned to public affairs chesterfield once went to beg him to come up to the house of lords to oppose ministers on some important business townsend replied that he knew he was extremely warm his temper and his personal feelings might hurry him into things which in his cooler moments he should be sorry for and that he was irrevocably determined to have no more to do with public affairs we can only wonder at the strange fascination of politics which has made such honourable self-command as townsend's so uncommon among statesmen whose ambition has missed its mark End of chapter 5 Recording by Pamela Nagami